Heroes, Bowie. Losers. From Poor But Sexy, Culture Clashes in Europe East and West by Agatha Pizik. The 1970s were the era of defeat. As the 60s were extremely intense in terms of political and social change, from the early 70s the flux went steady. David Bowie, who debuted in the late 60s, marked this change when he invented Ziggy Stardust in 1972, no more real heroes, from now on the most desirable thing was to be fabricated. What is genuine, authentic, is boring. The only hero that really matters, is pure artifice, cut out from the comic books, movies and dressed in everything that's glamorous. Bowie more than anyone contributed to the cherishing of artifice in pop music, realizing the idea of a hero for a day, only following the course mass culture had been taking for decades. Was he conscious of that? Some of his lyrics of the era mark the morning of the depoliticization of his generation, in the lyrics to the song Star, he mentions Bevan, who, tried to change the nation, and posing himself instead as someone who could make a transformation as a rock and roll star. Facing the growing nihilism of his generation, he still believes that as a star of artifice, he can carry on their political task. All the Young Dudes, a song he wrote for Mott the Hoople in 72, reeks of the youth's disappointment and disillusionment, forming a kind of solidarity of the loser's anthem. Bowie, always too erratic to make any firm political commitment, was rather in love with various dubious figures, cracked actors, the inspiration for Ziggy was a forgotten singer who was believed to be a combination of God and an alien, necromantics like Aleister Crowley. Kenneth Anger's Satanism, fascist dictators. He was, nevertheless, obsessed with certain elements of modernity. We all are. He was driven to German culture, especially the Weimar period, Expressionism, Neues Ochlichkeit, Theater, Brecht. His first breakthrough hit concerned a man lost in space, after all, and the space age gets a strongly melancholic treatment from Bowie, as his character Major Tom is rather terrified by the silence of space. Another obsession, as we will see, was Orwell's 1984. Bowie's fixation with totalitarianism applied to both sides. At one point he planned to stage an adaptation of the Soviet Czech comic book Octobriana, about a socialist she-devil superheroine, a Samizdat publication, that was circulated between creators only through the post. Bowie could only have learned about it from its 1971 American edition. On the other side, his dalliance with the far right was something more than just the famous Sieg Heil he made to fans in 1976 at Victoria Station. It's not an accident pop bands are very rarely left-wing, and Bowie's reaction to the economic crisis of the 70s was to imagine becoming a right-wing politician who'll sort things out. I believe strongly in fascism, Bowie said, the only way we can speed up the sort of liberalism that's hanging foul in the air is to speed up the progress of a right-wing tyranny. People have responded always more efficiently under a regimental leadership. Hierarchy is the natural order. Bowie recognized, if only half-consciously, the appeal and meaning of the pop idol as a dictator. Bowie's fascination with Germany and Berlin was only partly expressionism, much of it was also quite simply, fascism. Bowie who might have started an anti-communist music tradition which we now see flourishing amidst the new wave of futurist bands. He did. It was the growing synth-pop and new romanticism that was emerging from the post-punk bands. Although we are used to seeing industrial-slash-synth-pop-slash-post-punk as ruthless modernists, the bands were actually rarely openly left-wing. Nothing is left-wing during this period, I would say one of the few periods in the 20th century, really lucid of itself. Who will end up with this generation x the only one left in the West with a soul and a heart? The political message, if any, was rather vague. We were the political message, our lives were enough for this world. We didn't have fathers, who had chosen modernism. 
we have educated ourselves without fathers, we are the only last generation to have matured completely. Bands dwelling on the space age came often from dispossessed areas, which they then made topics for their music, but the result didn't have to be politically sound. If you take the whole fascination with the Germanic and post-punk bands, like Susie and the Banshees or, Omen Omen, Joy Division, the twisted outpourings of their our leaders weren't just simply teasing their parents. They were flirting with the outrageous, Susie, against the war generation, or they were openly right-wing, like Key and Curtis. In a context of pseudo-denazification, militancy reached its peak around 1968 and the police shooting of Benno Olnizork. By 1976, when Bowie moved to Berlin, it had become the armed terrorism of RAF, the Red Army Faction. Oh we can beat them, forever and ever. If you look at any footage of the West Berlin in 70s, you see a murky city, gravitating around the wall. Living next to a prison, even if theoretically you're not the prisoner, you can develop symptoms of suffocation. Knowing people can be killed over an illegal crossing of the wall, not being able to walk all of your city, imagining what there can be on the other side. Reiner Werner Fassbender felt shame for the post-war West Germans, for the way the West stuffed their mouths with consumerism and told them to shut up. One of the reasons the punk generation reads dystopias like 1984 and A Clockwork Orange as if they were their lives, and looks longingly towards the communist he's tea in their aesthetics, is their depoliticization. The generation of their grandparents was the one who survived the war, believed in socialism, was changing the world, joined political parties. Earlier, to piss off your parents, you join a communist party. By the 70s, those who wanted to change the world were discredited and all they had left was the aesthetics. A generation or two before, people believed in the modernist ideal for living, built estates for collective life, in which neighbors were to meet in the patio and socialize. All this architecture has aged horribly, and shows that it was a false doctrine, the freedom of the individual passes through the total individuation of the individual, his liberation, mythologized by the resurrection, long, painful but only capable of realizing the detachment from the matter. The 1960s and 70s also marked the crisis and decline of the nuclear family. Ending the bourgeois economical model In the regress, with a growing number of divorces, this generation was paying for the necessary experiment of their parents. The counterculture as a resource-slash-channel of political culture also began to decline. And we have really entered the nihilistic modernity. What was left were the drugs. Berlin since the 70s started having an enormous population of drug addicts. The 70s were an era of abandoned children, with no more support in institutions. Christiane hates Gropiestadt, where she lives with her single, always-at-work mother, who is always absent, unless she is fucking her dodgy boyfriend. The only company and community she finds is in the nightclubs and friends, who are all into drugs. She goes to The Sound, the famous disco club, labeled as the most modern discotheque in Europe. She starts lightly, takes speed and coke, but the whole thing is about H. H is her obsession, a gate to a different reality, where she can communicate with her idol, Bowie. All societies need leaders. No leaders equals an abandoned society. In Heroes, Bowie makes a final declaration, there's no more heroes, long live the heroes. And it is the Easterners who shoot, who perpetrate the terror, it's true, it was the choice of the DDR government to erect the wall, as between the establishing of the Republic in 1948 and 1961 their population was growingly defecting to the West. This was the ideological failure of the East who had to lock their citizens to convince them they live in the best of the worlds. They couldn't, continuing to be trapped with their lives. For young people of the declining late 70s, Bowie, an endlessly enigmatic hero for one day, replaced their politicians, 
parents, institutions, their God. Berlin is there a hard-edged, harsh city with no mercy, ruthless, easily claiming lives, once ascending city of modernity, where their dreams have died. We are in the realm of joy division, their passionless sex, their unjoy, resignation, their absolute nihilism. Punk was dead. Punk was dead. West Berlin was full of pale, lifeless, sleepwalking young people, Hitler called Germany a nation of sleepwalkers. The real Christian F. Felsherinoff, was offered a career as Tell Us Our Story. She recorded hours of material that then became the famous book, and then the film. When her story broke, it caused a wave of outrage and self-accusations over the health of the nation in the shadow of its Nazi guilt. There was no need for Hitler. Jesus Christ made the beginning. It seemed like the post-war optimism was finally over and the children of the hippie generation had been submerged by the nihilist punk wave. Christianism does not have a long life. Christiane wasn't abused, didn't lack education, didn't grow up in poverty or worse yet, she wasn't an East German, she was alienated and she was from a broken home. She was raised in the personal freedoms promised by liberalism, that in the process became meaningless. Alienated like any good Christian. The weird aesthetic space that emerged between the neoliberal space opening in the late 70s, me, and that commodified subcultures become an ersatz of a political emancipation from the past which is no longer available. Subculture replaces political engagement which, for different reasons, can't be expressed politically. A dead Western society, abandoned, building urban furniture rather than social bonds. Fifty years later, the West has pushed this line by legislating against the rupture of the social bonding. As if a state could provide social bonding, but Westerners far too zombified don't even understand what's going on. The obsession this era has with the mechanical, controlled man evoked the fears of totalitarianism and the state control just as a deeper fantasy of human efficiency. The measurement of the body, of its possibilities, was at the start of the technological revolution, an organization. It was a dark echo of the Golem, Puppets, Carl Chopek's Robots, and Fritz Lang's Metropolis, the real source of post-punk imagery, although of deeply dubious politics. Punks, a lost generation betrayed by history, were obsessed with it, despite claiming a lack of any interest in the past. Their obsession was a fantasy within the late capitalist, increasingly post-Fortis society, where efficiency was already beginning to be replaced with dubious financial capital. The mechanized organism was a Fortist obsession, and found its sickly, glam repetition in Klaus Nomi, a Bavarian former pastry maker, who discovered an operatic countertenor in himself. In the famous Saturday Night Live performance with Bowie in 1979, they channeled the German avant-garde, dressed in Sonia Delaunay-inspired bombastic Dada suits, with exaggerated inflatable arms and legs, Bowie using also a puppet in a communist China blue suit with a Mao collar, but equipped with a skirt. With the political crisis approaching, the post-boom generation, as if feeling that history was going to strike back again, took on the task of performing painful historical exorcisms on themselves. They lived as if it was the 20s, 30s, 50s or 60s, and yet they lived inevitably in the present. It was Bowie who put the elements together. Bowie, a model postmodernist, someone who built his life and art out of the artificial, who went though pop art, comic books and Brecht, needed the necessary free zone of the real, which he found in Berlin, Warsaw, and Moscow. As we saw, he was the wall against which Christiane Effender drugged, prostituting young friends were projecting their saccharine dreams that never came true. Berlin was, like any other big post-war metropolis raised from ashes, a scene of modernity's failure, with the decaying tower block estates, like Gropischstadt, which for Christiane is in turn everything she fears and hates. 
It was the conservative Catholic modernist Anthony Burgess whose terrifying vision of modish city oiks turned Soviet was the one which kept stirring generations of you. Th and became a foundational text for the glam and punk generation. A Clockwork Orange, of which we speak, had its roots in a trip Burgess took to Russia in the 50s, when he got beaten by Western-dressed smart-looking young delinquents in Leningrad. And this is why we don't need the Christian in Europe. Everyone says Joy Division music is gloomy and heavy. For me it was because the whole neighborhood I lived in was completely decimated in the mid-60s. At the end of our street there was a huge chemical factory, says Bernie Sumner in a John Savage interview, there was a huge sense of community where I lived. I remember the summer holidays when I was a kid. What happened in the 60s is that someone in council decided that it wasn't very healthy and something had to go and it was my neighborhood that went. We were moved to the tower block. At the time I thought it was fantastic, now of course I realize it was an absolute disaster. Joy Division were English boys for whom the end of the world as they knew it resulted in bleak fascination with the other side, people under totalitarianism, with whom they felt a secret affinity, making music as if their world was their own. But it also worked the other way round. The morbidity of their music hit exactly the emotions disaffected. It is funny to see that these barbarities that are the states had to create idols, materialized forms of the heroes. This shows how low man has fallen into matter. And they're all asking for free iPhones and universal income. For more than 30 years, David Bowie's been challenging the limits of artistic expression. He first made his mark in the 1970s with the flamboyant, surreal stage persona Ziggy Stardust. In the 80s, he ascended to superstardom with enormously successful commercial albums, particularly 1983's Let's Dance. He's known as an innovator, a creative artist blending the worlds of music and film and art. Last year, he ventured into publishing with the launch of 21, an independent art publishing house. I am pleased to have him here to talk about a life in music, in film, and now in publishing and art. Welcome. Great to Good see evening, Charlie. Well, it's I'm nice sorry. to have I you back. Follow that. Uh, can we do this without Julian? I suspect we can, <laughs> can't we? <laughs> We're never doing it without Julian. Julian will always be there in spirit. All yeah. right. Uh, let me go all the way back because I want to move sort of where you, where you have come to, mm. being what you're doing today. South London. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, just tell me about where you wanted to be and what it was that influenced you and what I it was that that got you started. When I was at uh, school I was in a, uh, an art stream and uh, I guess everything was geared for me to be a, an artist, a visual artist and a painter and or a commercial artist and I think for about the first six months when I left school I was a commercial artist making money that way but I was playing saxophone in the evenings right. with uh, rhythm and blues bands and I found that I didn't like doing designer work for sort of raincoats and slimming biscuits Yes. A, a now defunct slimming biscuit actually that we worked on called AIDS. Called what? It was called AIDS. Yes. That was the slimming biscuit that we were working on. That is no more, of course. Uh, and uh, I found that I was earning as much money playing the saxophone in the evening and it was giving me a lot more pleasure because I was my own master of that. And so I gave up the commercial art and stayed with the saxophone. It went from one, one to thing another. led to another. Yeah. <laughs> well, rather over a period of time there yeah. in the 60s, but Presley influenced you? Little Richard influenced Little Richard, you? very much so. Presley, uh, because uh, I think he was just such an indomitable spirit of music uh, in his early days, and uh, it, it was reckless, and it was really quite a rebellion that he cast upon America and the whole of Western society, really, single-handedly. White, white, the white West, anyway. Yeah. Uh, Little Richard and Fats Domino, of course, uh, the early rockers, 
and then into things like uh, John Lee Hooker and yeah. And also, by the 60s, I, I fell in love with a band called the Velvet Underground, and uh, right. I think they sort of sorted me out the kind of music that I wanted to write. Not really like them, but I took the uh, tip from them, yeah. anyway. You were going from one band to another. I mean, I've never yeah. seen such a list of bands that uh, you were associated with. Yeah, a weaker band, yeah. <laughs> a weaker band. Yeah. yeah. All going to do what? I mean, just to, to be a musician and to... Yeah, I couldn't make... I mean, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't very resolute about the idea of being a singer. I played saxophone. I wanted, yeah. really, I wanted to do that, but a singer was uh, beaten up one night, and so I took over the vocals, and it went down okay, and so I stayed on as singer, and then I got disenchanted with the songs that we were doing. I wanted us to write our own, and they didn't want to write songs. So I got thrown out of the band, and then, you know, it was all those kinds yeah. of changes. When was it? It was fairly first? sort of, uh, uh, it was really, that's a pretty stereotypical beginnings for any, any person out of England, I think. How did this? But the interesting thing is, yeah. is the percentage of people in, in rock music that, in fact, have some kind of art background uh, compared to American bands. A lot of American bands often come from uh, a different kind of background. It's often, a, it's very often a blue collar kind of background. Right. Um, and it was, uh, and they're probably brought up in more industrial towns, and they're... Like Springsteen in New Jersey. It's a typical example. Um, I think uh, in Britain there was really a penchant for anybody studying... Oh, you went to art school to learn how to play the guitar better, it seems yeah. to me. And so many of us ended up in, in rock bands. And I think that gave English rock its, its kind of character. It gave it the, the strange quirkiness that it has. I mean... For sure, mine draws on not just rock, but vaudeville um, and avant-garde, you know. It can, it can wear a red nose yeah. and sort of take its clothes off at the same time. This notion of you as an iconoclast, this sense yeah. of, of always striking out to sort of, as we say, push the edges of the envelope, where does that yeah. come from? I'm not sure if it's iconoclastic. I, I think my ideal more is uh, uh, a synthesis uh, rather than anything else. I quite and have always liked the idea of uh, the cybernetics of our culture, the way that you can draw several strands together and create a new thing. I, th I, I hope and believe that it's a, uh, that what I do is more of a creative thing in that way, that I think it's fine to draw from opera or from uh, the visual arts, uh, from the uh, underground, from mainstream, um, uh, and just produce a new blend, which is probably a, a more complete way of describing the way that we live and uh, creating, a, creating a sense of the cultural spin by, by amalgamating all these different threads. That's, that's why I think well, anyway. Well, one of the <laughs> that's, that's it, isn't it? <laughs> that's what it's all about. One of the things that people have always said about you is you keep an eye on what's going on with what is new. I can't take my eyes off them. <laughs> I, it's, you know, it's, uh, I really, I've got an incredible... Um, appetite for, for what we do and, and how we do it and how we express it. Um, and ever since I was a kid, it's, it's a, I always want to know what's out there. Do I've you, always wanted to know what's happening. Do you think of yourself first as a musician? Uh, <coughs> I mean, no, music no actually, I find that the idea of having to say that I'm a musician uh, in any way is an embarrassment to me because I don't really believe that. I've always felt that what I do is I use music for my way of expression. I don't believe I'm very accomplished at it. And uh, I sigh, a, uh, uh, I give a little sigh of relief every time that I come up with something which sounds whole and complete and sort of functions as a piece of music. I mean, sort of, uh, 
and 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 uh, fortunately, it does seem to be there all the time. I never, I never seem to go dry when it comes to writing music. But I don't feel like a musician. Because you don't feel that you have that talent? Uh, because probably I don't really take myself seriously enough as a musician at all. I'm far too interested, probably too interested for my own good, but uh, I'm far more interested in the blending of different things. And I, I, I just can't, I don't have, I have the attention span of a grasshopper, which means that it, it's very difficult for me to become a craftsman. I suppose that I'm uh, uh, quite promiscuous and uh, a jack of all trades. Oh. Said that you, the only movies you do are those in which you like the director and you want to do There's something. There's got to be something in there that I really feel yeah. that I have strong empathy with, you know. And, uh, of course, uh, you know about me and SKs and, you know, <laughs> yes. the, the military and uh, all that. <laughs> what is it you think you do best? Um, you know what? I think I would love to have been... Uh, I would actually... I would love to have been like Sting and been a teacher. I really would have liked to have done that. Uh... What, I, what, what, gets, what really sort of gets me off is to be able to introduce people to new things. I love the uh, feeling of introducing a new subject or something, uh, especially to younger people, that, that maybe excites them and gets them going on something and influences them to do something, you know, opening up some kind of world. I love taking people to uh, art galleries and really corny things like that. I love going to museums with them as well. Um, and it's a joy that I've always had with my son especially. It's been just terrific to be able to do that. Take him to the theatre uh, one week maybe and then take him to a, a, a dance club or a rock show and then an art museum and all these different things. And it's just great to see how somebody else takes these same influences and puts them together their own way. Because I remember when people did that for me, I always felt it was a gift when anybody took me anywhere and uh, or showed me a, a new way of doing things. I always felt that that was the greatest gift that they could give to me, and I love doing that back. I love showing people things like that. I've got a website um, called bowieart.com. Right. At the moment, it's quite, uh, it's quite a vanity box because it's all my stuff. Um, but we do have quite a bit of uh, information on the books with the publishing company. All right, we'll get to that in just a moment. Let me yeah, just but also, no, my point is, is that in about two or three weeks, we're going to start putting on new artists. Uh, artists that I believe are very good and have really have something to say. And we're also opening it up more as an e-zine with a lot more articles. And I'm going to encourage the people that are, uh, are using the uh, site to contribute their ideas and, and maybe galleries or artists and work that they've seen and, and have them write in and tell us about it. Uh, I want to also get to a place where we can have them download work by artists from this site and interfere with it, manipulate it and put it back up again, which I think is a really nice interactive thing to do, is to mess, mess with an artist's work is, I think, great. Well, I have a magazine here. One of the things that you do for, for modern painters is you interview artists. Yeah. I enjoy that Jeff tremendously. Jeff Koons and, and yeah. others. Uh, and and I, I try and make it a, a deal for myself not to interview anybody that I really don't feel... Uh, is somebody who has uh, uh, some place or position in my in my in my heart as being uh, uh, a, a pretty. If it's good. not somebody you like or curious yeah, about. Yeah, I mean, or, or because I'm a so-called celebrity interviewer, I kind of rather take advantage of that and just go for the people that I really want to interview. It's it's not a job in that way, you know. Go and interview him or yeah, right. her. Whatever. I kind of suggest the people. You go where your curiosity takes <laughs> yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you got it, use it. Yeah. You know. You're painting. Uh, we're going to see a few here. Okay. How long have you been painting? Um, probably, again, uh, 
I guess it all started bubbling up to play music and sing and paint all around the same time, around eight, about eight years old, I guess I started um, taking it seriously. When I was around 18 or 19, I took it more seriously. And it's gone through ups and down, you know, zenith and many years. Well, when, uh, funnily enough, when music starts to decline in my interest, where well, there are moments when you really feel like you haven't got it, that you've got nothing really to express, that it's going wrong, you've lost the plot. At uh, those times, I found that, mu that uh, painting has really sort of taken over, and I've done, I've produced an awful lot during that time. But they keep balancing each other around. I, I used to find that they would balance each other very well. So when, when one's down, one is up. Yeah, well I had a, I had a way of uh, working through musical problems by painting them out at one time and uh, that seems to have disappeared over the, over the years. But uh, You've lost that ability? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, for one reason or another it's, that seems to have changed now. Alright, let's take a look at some of them and then we'll come back. These are the kinds of images that have been downloaded. These have been, in fact, downloaded by our group here from your website. www.com boyart.com. Okay, the first, let's take a look at the first thing. What do we, what's that? Could this be Iggy Pop, huh? It certainly could be Iggy Pop. That's Iggy Pop in 1976, as I saw him, when uh, we were living in Berlin. We just moved, we both had fairly severe, uh, severe drug problems. And uh, so, to rectify that, we moved to Berlin, the uh, heroin capital of the world, uh, which I guess in retrospect doesn't sound like a terribly sensible No, it doesn't sound very smart to me. And that's a picture of Jim turning blue uh, in, uh, in his apartment in Berlin. That's uh, a portrait of me turning yes, into the is. Lion King. <laughs> this, is, yeah. this, this is 1995, yes, though. Yeah. I was quite prescient with this because I knew that was going to be a musical. Now, who influences you in, in your painting? <laughs> um, a lot of people influence me yes, I into know. not painting. But, but, uh, but we want to spare them the credit, don't we? You know what? I, I'm, again, uh, I have no loyalty to style whatsoever. I mean, I, I can, one day I can be, uh, I can be a complete minimalist yeah. and just paint a, a stick of wood white. And the, the next day I want to be uh, quite florid and painterly and, and do something like the Iggy, Iggy Pop painting. But does ha tell me the satisfaction of completing a painting that you, that, where you're on, that you like a lot. That, for me, it, Yeah, the satisfaction of that. It, for me, to be quite frank, it's finishing it so I can get on to something else. I mean, it's, it, just it's getting weird. Through it's, it? not, it's getting through it. It's the process. Um, there's something in it that it just turns... It just turns me to jelly. Turn my heart and my mind just just become. I can't explain it. It's a very strange feeling. It's not particularly pleasant either. I can't really say that I enjoy. I, I can't really say that I enjoy music or painting in quite that. I mean, it's not like sex or something which you can kind of really enjoy. There's <laughs> I knew something you'd get back really. To sex. <laughs> it's important. It's, <laughs> there's something. Um, there's something volatile, emotive, and um, something that makes me really quite angry about going through the process of both making music and, and doing visual arts. And, but uh, visuals are... But, you know, I guess that's my problem. No, but let's deal with your problem. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you but came if, to but see... if you deal with my problem, I might not be able to do these things again, you see. I oh. I, I'm wary of uh, analysis. Yes, sir, but let me point out to you, <laughs> yeah. knowing your history and knowing your family yes. and knowing your background, you have always, always resisted any suggestion I want you to look over this way when I'm talking to you. <laughs> I'm getting deeply into those yes, eyes. Yes, I know you yeah. are. You were getting into those eyes, yeah. weren't you? Now, why are you What's wearing... this about? <laughs> <laughs> you, 
You have always, yeah. always resisted any notion that this creativity that you have comes from any sort of dysfunctional or you know, madness he, I, out of it's, family. I think I've often wondered if, if actually the, being an artist of, in any way, any nature, is a, a, a kind of a sign of a certain kind of dysfunction, a social dysfunctionalism anyway. Yeah. It's an extraordinary thing to want to do, to express yourself in such, in such rarefied terms. Uh, uh, I think there's a, a, I think it's a loony kind of thing to want to do. I think the, the saner and rational approach to life is to survive steadfastly and create a protective home and, 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 and create a warm, loving environment for one's family and, and get food for them. That's about it. That's actually all. Anything else is extra. All culture is extra. Culture is, uh, you know, that's, uh, I guess it's a freebie. It's something that we, we don't, we only need to eat. We don't need uh, particular color plates or particular height chairs or anything. I mean, anything will do, but we insist on making 1,000 different kinds of chairs and 15 different kinds of plates. It's, it's unnecessary, and it's a sign of the irrational part of man, I think. We should just be content with picking nuts. Not mine, <laughs> I might add. You were so on. <laughs> Let me see the next slide. <laughs> the next thing is an acrylic and computer collage on canvas. Yeah. Yeah, what I do, I take a... Um, this um, is 1997. We're not... Yeah, no, this, we're very recent now. This is yeah. what it looks like now. It's not so expressionist, is it? There's a kind of... Uh, <laughs> no, there's nothing. There's, uh, I, think, I think probably I'm getting influenced by what's called bad painting, which is uh, uh, in vogue. Uh, if you want to know about bad painting, ask Charles Saatchi, because he bought everyone in England. He did? Every single bad painting in England, I believe. And did he put uh, him in... Except that one. But he hasn't he, bought that one. <laughs> did he put him in storage somewhere? He's probably <laughs> sold him by now. <laughs> you know Charles. Yes. All right, next slide. Uh, yes, bad painting meets expressionism. <laughs> you see, I can do them all in combinations. Yeah. You just tell me who you want. All right. And uh, you'll get it. <laughs> yes. This is... That's what this, this is. This is, is an just acrylic this, and... <laughs> yeah, these are, these are a series of paintings of people that come in and out of my life, and I just do very quick sketches and take photographs and Polaroids and produce very fast, and uh, in a way, I think they're fairly accurate uh, portraits. And who of might this be? This is just... This is a trucker. <laughs> <laughs> no, there are not too many truckers in my life, Charlie, but this one obviously <laughs> made a mark. It must have been the underhang. Yes. You think, would you call that an underhang? Well, uh, it's not an overhang, is it? No, I, well, I guess it could be an underhang. I guess so, yeah. Next slide. That was a rather, uh, I guess... Uh, Another self-portrait. Yeah. But, uh, these come from a series of uh, five paintings that I did as a potential cover for an album called Outside. And this, in fact, was the one that I chose as the cover. Um, what happened to the album? Uh, not very much. It, did, it, it came out, and uh, uh, I think it was quite interesting. In fact, I'm, I'm supposed to be doing it. As, um, as a theatre piece with Robert Wilson for the year 2000. So that's something that we're supposed to be meeting if either of us can find a, some kind of place where we're both in the same country at the same well, time. Well, that would be right now because he's in New York City. Is he? Yes. <laughs> I'd kill him for not phoning me. <laughs> Next slide. Robert, wherever you are, contact me. Um, that's called Ancestor Figure. Um, this was inspired by a trip you went to South Africa in 1995 with... Iman. Yeah, we went over there just after Freedom called, and yeah. 
Uh, one of the stories prevalent in Africa is that the uh, ghosts of one's ancestors are white, and uh, often when white man was first seen, he was thought of as being one of the ancestors, ancestors. of the tribe, and so I just took that and, and uh, did a series of ancestor figures with kind of Ziggy Stardust haircuts. <laughs> see, see, here's the picture I get. Yeah. It, all of it never goes away. It's all still there, so you can reach back and bring it forward and push it back yeah. and step forward. Oh, did I, I mean, show you this? This is uh, Charlie yeah, has this. It's an original piece of merchandise from my Ziggy Stardust tour. It's still that long We pressed ago. seven of these, and this is one of them. <laughs> Discovered. All right, next slide. We've got two more, and maybe we're going to move on. Yeah, I think we better. <laughs> well, that's obviously, that's the, that's the female to the series. <laughs> Remember, America, if you want these, you can pick them up on, on, the, on the website. Be my guest. <laughs> All right, next slide. <laughs> this is Bill T. Jones. This is interesting. Yeah, Bill T. Jones uh, wanted, uh, um, well, asked me if I would contribute some art for, to a, a benefit that he's uh, throwing for, for dance. And uh, this is one of three uh, pieces, three lithographs that I did for him. Voila. Um, a couple of things about the music. Yeah. Do you... How do you feel about Let's Dance? I, I mean, think it, it became an incredible... I mean, it was an extraordinary acceptance that I had there. Um, I'd never had anything quite like that before. Up until that time, I was quite happy being a sort of a major cult figure, in a way. You know, it sort of... It was a nice place to be. It gave me a lot of freedom. Um, I, could st I knew that I could depend on an audience that would virtually follow... Uh, w follow my whims, you know, and I could sort yeah. of do what I wanted, but... Uh, Let's Dance thing almost became a hindrance and obstacle. In fact, it did become a hindrance and obstacle to me because I suddenly, my, my poles changed. My, my suddenly, my focus was on, well, what are the audience's expectations of me now? And I started maybe writing for an audience, which I've never, ever done before. And when I learned that that was, uh, for me, a stupid thing to do, uh, I, I got back into the way of writing for myself again. And I think... Balance has been, uh, equilibrium has been uh, arrived at now. I'm very, now very, very happy with the way things are, uh, both musically and the kind of uh, simpatico that I have with my, my audience. Everything got a lot of very good reviews. It did indeed. I was, I was so, uh, so pleased about that because it was an album that had no compromises on, on it whatsoever. It was very hard-nosed. Um, and uh, I was just so pleased the way it was accepted. It was great. It was lovely. That's very nice when that happens. You, when did you celebrate your 50th birthday? Yeah. When? 51 now, Charlie. <laughs> 51 now. Yeah, but you're not unhappy about that. No, I mean, you no. seem to be to have arrived at some acceptance. It might not have been as hard as 40 was for you. No, but 40 was pretty difficult. Because uh, you didn't want to let go of the idea that you were still 20. Everything was wrong. No, it's not. It was more about the fact that it was also my nadir as a musician. I was writing crap, and uh, it, it, it just, nothing was going right uh, artistically for me. I thought, you know... I thought I'd just dried. I was trying to write for audiences. It, it was right in the middle of that period, 1987. And uh, it was just astonishingly awful time for me. Um, and I think I just had to kind of almost... It's almost about pulling yourself together and saying, hey, I've got maybe this finite length of time left. I really would like to enjoy it. So, you know, stop self-pity and stop all these kinds of things and, and just pull yourself together and maybe make some decisions about what it is you really want out of life. And I think the first thing I wanted was each day to be really good. Um, and so I had to go about uh, changing everything in my life. Everything. And uh, I've arrived now at a place that uh, 
I hope that I'm not self-satisfied, but I'm certainly uh, uh, a fulfilled man. I'm fulfilled romantically, musically, artistically. I love my family. We're, we're so close now. Right. Um, I have a terrific relationship with my son. Just, I can't tell you how great. And uh, uh, so it's something I just want to keep on the front burner every day. I just want it to be just like that until death strikes, you know, and that would be cool.